Hello, good evening, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views, and reviews. And oh boy, do we have some reviews for you. I am actually genuinely, almost physically holding myself back from running the reviews, both of The Mandalorian and Star Trek Picard, because I am so excited by both. But first, a little bit of news. In a world where everything went according to plan, I would now be telling you about the launch of the very first orbital test flight of SpaceX's Starship rocket. As I record this on Wednesday the 19th of April, it should have gone on Monday. It didn't. Now, this is actually not a huge surprise, and unusually for this show, we are not about to start making fun of Elon Musk. I mean, we might later, but not over this. Because, well, what they're trying to do here is incredibly difficult. This is something that governments have not yet succeeded in doing. So the fact that a relatively small company in Texas hasn't managed it yet is, uh, well, unsurprising, frankly. What is surprising about, well, not just Starship, actually, but the whole of SpaceX is that any of it gets done. So what is Starship? Well, Starship is a huge stainless steel rocket. When they finally get it to work, and it really is a question of when, not if, when they finally get it to work, it has the potential to take humans to the moon. It has the potential to take humans to Mars. It has potential to take humans further than that, really. It may be the most versatile chemical rocket, not just ever built, but that ever will be built. And if that sounds hyperbolic, well, it is a bit. But this thing, it's it's the Superman or the Captain Marvel of rocketry in that it's ridiculously overpowered and it's nonsense that anything should ever be able to do everything that this is said to be able to do. And yet, somehow, it keeps delivering. The configuration currently sitting on a launch pad in Texas is a two-stage affair. A huge liquid-fueled booster topped by, well, frankly, an equally huge liquid-fueled second stage, which would also be carrying the crew compartment. Obviously, any launch in the near future of this thing will be uncrewed because, well, they do have a tendency to explode, which we'll come to. The whole thing, when assembled, is larger in size than NASA's space launch system which is what they're using to launch the Orion capsule for the Artemis missions. And it's larger even slightly in size than the mighty Saturn V's that put humans around the moon the last time we went there. This is a beast that's been built by SpaceX, a company that has a real flair for the dramatic. And so it looks like nothing you've ever seen before. This is a polished tube of stainless steel that glitters like silver, against the sun. And uncharitable comparisons to various adult toys have also been made, but we would never make those. It seems to me, at least, that the problem with this machine is that it is both at the same time incredibly simple, but as a result of its simplicity, ridiculously complicated. Let me explain. For a start, they are fueling this thing with methane gas. Now that is cheap, and abundant, and makes sense economically, 
makes absolute sense. NASA rockets tend to use liquid hydrogen, which is lighter, but not quite as easy to handle. Both. I mean, I've seen coverage suggesting that one of the problems with the methane is that it has to be cooled to a very low temperature. And I've seen that blamed for the problem that happened with the launch on Monday, which was a frozen fuel valve. Except that doesn't stack up because hydrogen, in order to be used as rocket fuel, is also cryogenic. It has to be cooled to ridiculously low temperatures. So the freezing issue would be the same whatever fuel they were using, frankly. Methane is, of course, more polluting than hydrogen, which is where I have an issue with it. If you burn hydrogen to create thrust, your exhaust is essentially water. If you burn methane, it's, well, quite a lot of CO2, which does sort of undermine Musk's insistence that he's out to save the planet. But in the grand scheme of things, if SpaceX stopped using methane as its fuel, the impact on global warming would be, well, negligible, because it's a billionth of a percent of, you know, everything else. Now, I think the big problem with Starship, and I've said this before on the show, is they've gone with fairly small, fairly simple rocket engines, which makes a great deal of sense on one level. The, the mighty Saturn V had a first stage which featured five F1 rocket engines. Now, these were the most powerful single-chamber rocket engines ever built. To this day, nothing more powerful has ever been constructed. And they generated a total 7.5 million pounds of thrust. I wish I could give you that in a sensible measurement, but NASA only works in imperial figures and I don't have the brain capacity to translate it into metric. These were very complex engines and there was a lot that could go wrong with them. Also, if something went wrong with one of them, the explosion would have been, well, let's just say it wouldn't, it would have been non-negligible and leave it there. But you only have five things that can go wrong. That's a reasonable risk, I think we can say. Super Heavy, which is the name of the first stage of the Starship rocket, has 33 Raptor engines. That's 33. Now, these engines do have a couple of advantages over the F1. First of all, they're reusable. The F1s were not. They were You built them, you used them, you crashed them into the sea, they burned up in the atmosphere, whatever. They were never getting used again. That's not economically sensible. So reusing the Raptors, fine. And the Raptor is a tried and tested rocket engine. Yeah, they use them in the Falcon rockets, which are performing such sterling service for SpaceX right now. But 33? Even if you don't have a catastrophic failure of one of them, the failure of any of them halts your mission. And that's 33 possibilities of cocking up on the launch pad. That's, that's a big, big risk. Not necessarily to life and limb, but certainly to mission viability. And I would simply point you at the Soviet attempts at the moon. Because in spite of the fact that the Russians have been building most of the rocket engines in the world for some time now, they actually never really mastered it as well as the Americans did. And while the first stage of the Saturn V had five engines, the first stage of 
the Soviet N1 moon rocket had 30 engines. And I think that's a significant factor in explaining how the N1 never quite made it to orbit. Our ship has six more than that. Hardly a surprise, therefore, that when questioned about the chances of success of a launch on Monday, Musk said it was about 50-50. And to be honest, if they got the first stage off the ground, he'd be happy. As long as the thing didn't blow up on the launch pad, he'd count that as a success. Now, I admire the realism and the results that SpaceX has achieved already with its Falcon series of rockets is undeniable. I mean, being able to land these things tail first is, again, I've said before, pointless, at least if you go for atmospheric landing, but still impressive. It really is like watching Thunderbirds. So these guys can do this stuff. Are they going to do it soon, though? I think the the obstacles are huge. So I think I think we can expect a few more accidental fireworks from SpaceX before they get Starship into orbit. OK, and a couple of bits of non-Disney Plus related TV news before we go any further as well. Uh, the first is that Dead Boy Detectives, the sort of Sandman spin-off, except it's a spin-off in the comics. The bit of the Sandman comics that Dead Boy Detectives spins out of hasn't actually been done in the Sandman TV show yet. So it's not really a Sandman spin-off in TV terms, but you know what I mean. Um, they finished production on season one and it's Netflix. So they finished production. Let's not be let's not be hoping for a season two. That would be too much for my heart to handle, I think. Um, but uh, Steve Yockley, who is showrunning this thing, has said that filming is done, um, production's done. Uh, so we can expect an announcement about um, air dates reasonably soon, I think. So um, keep your eye open for that. I really like Dead Boy Detectives. Um, based on characters created by Neil Gaiman and Matt Wagner, it's an interesting take on a ghost story. Uh, the, the, the current run of the comic of Dead Boy Detectives has been a pick of the week at Destination Venus a couple of times, uh, and I've mentioned it on this show before. It, it It's two boys, children, young teenagers, who died about 100 years apart at the same boarding school uh, in slightly different circumstances, but essentially both bullied to death. And they realise that, OK, they're ghosts, but they don't have to haunt the place they died. And so... They decide they're going to be detectives because they're young teenage boys and they set off in search of adventure. And it, it's such a cool concept because you can do so much with it. So keep your eyes open for that. I'm not going to go into detail because, again, we don't want to raise anybody's hopes too high. But just vague hints from Neil Gaiman that the Sandman TV show itself is going to be handled in volumes is the word he used which suggests that there may be a green light for more than one future season. But again, it's Netflix, and we don't like to get our hopes up. Anyway, we're going to wrap the news there, because I can't. I can't not talk about it any longer. Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to put I'm going to put Picard off a little bit longer, but I think it's time for the haunting panpipes.
Okay, The Mandalorian, Season 3, Episode 7, The Spies, and we'll come to the fact that that's plural in a bit. Okay, if you are listening to this on the day it drops, which is Thursday, the 20th of April, 2023, the episode I'm about to talk about is a week old. You've had a whole week to try and see this before I spoil the heck out of it. I am, however, going to spoil the heck out of it pretty much from now. So, you have been warned, and just to make sure that we're absolutely clear, here's the spoiler one. Spoilers! Spoilers! Okay, everybody good? Awesome. Right, okay, so, first of all, whilst I am still missing that spaghetti western, lone wolf and cub, ronin feel that the first two seasons of the show had, I am getting used to the switch in tone. And I can't help but feel that this is a good episode. I'll grant you a whole bunch of crazy stuff happened, but I'm kind of just rolling with it now. So, what happened? Well, the armourer agrees with Bo-Katan that a good thing to do would be to go back to Mandalore and retake it. And that Bo-Katan, as the wielder of the Darksaber, should lead that endeavour. Although, the armourer goes with, and we'll come to that in a bit. So, the armourer and... Bo-Katan and Din and a group of volunteers from both factions of the Mandalorians currently domiciled on Navarro, the Night Owls under Bo-Katan and the Death Watch under the Armourer, get themselves together, put together a little fleet. Uh, They've got Moff Gideon's old light cruiser and a whole bunch of other Mandalorian ships and Off they go to Mandalore, where they take up station in orbit and a drop team goes down to the surface. There they meet a sailing ship that sails across the land on huge skis and is piloted by more Mandalorians. Mandalorians who never left Mandalore. Mandalorians who remained loyal to Bo-Katan and who never surrendered. And Bo-Katan has to acknowledge that she did. That in order to save her people, she surrendered to Moff Gideon and gave him the Darksaber on the understanding that Mandalore would be spared. And he betrayed her, and it was not. This group of grizzled Mandalorians also joins with Bogatan's group and the Armourer's group. So now we have three factions of Mandalorians. And there is some friction here, particularly between Axe Wolves, former leader of the Night Owls, and the guy who took Bo-Katan's group of Mandalorians over, but he's now sort of loyal to Bo-Katan. And Pash Vizsla, the big, bulky Mandalorian guy from the Death Watch who has the massive gun. There's a wee bit of machismo squaring off over a game of, I don't know, chess? Whatever it was. Now, that could have been a problem because neither side can really intervene in a fight between those two without everybody else on the other side joining in and the whole thing breaking down. But the day is saved by Grogu. Because Grogu isn't riding around in his little floating crib anymore. At the very beginning of this episode, while they're all still on Navarro, my magistrate, Grief Carver, makes, well, sort of makes Din a gift, but actually he's really giving it to Grogu, a gift of IG-11, who is not fixed. They have not been able to fix IG-11's brain. So he's effectively a robot chassis. 
with a space in his chest where if you're very small, you can sit and pilot him. And Grogu is small enough to do that. So suddenly Grogu has a full sized adult robot body and he's enjoying that. Um, it turns out that the only two words that he can say through IG-11's vocal apparatus are yes and no. And oh boy, does he make use of that. So Grogu piloting IG-11 gets in between them. And honestly, who's going to punch Grogu? So everything is de-escalated just in time for one of the many massive monsters that appear to inhabit Mandalore to come along and destroy the sailing ship. Which means that the party has to go on on foot because they're seeking the Great Forge, the heart of old Mandalore. If you rule that, you rule Mandalore. You rule Mandalore, you rule the Mandalorians. This is what Bo-Katan is after. Meanwhile, on Coruscant, we see the true nature of Kane. She is definitely not working for the High Republic. She is definitely a spy for Moff Gideon. How do we know this? Because she makes her way to a seedy part of Coruscant's nightclub district, where she meets an Imperial probe droid, which carries a message from Moff Gideon. So that's all sorted. We definitely know what she's about. We then see Moff Gideon himself in whatever secret lair Moff Gideon currently has, and more about that in a minute too, walking through a series of, I don't know, secret dory things, past what appear to be clone bodies of various things, into a chamber where the holographic representations of the Secret Imperial Council are in session. And there's a bit of back and forth. Moff Gideon's requested some Praetorian guards and some equipment, some fighters, some bombers, that kind of thing. And they're clearly a bit suspicious of Moff Gideon. And they're, they're not entirely sure they want to give him all these resources. But he points out that Admiral Thrawn is not here yet. And I've got stuff to deal with. And he gets what he wants. So I mentioned Thrawn only because this episode dropped the day after they publicly dropped the trailer for the Ahsoka series, which specifically references Grand Admiral Thrawn. So I'm guessing they dropped the spoiler before this episode so that this episode wouldn't spoiler the trailer. It is all coming together in one big thing right now. And that's good. Happy about that. But where is Moff Gideon's secret lair? We're about to find out, folks, because the Mandalorian party has made its way into the ruins of the Grand Forge of Mandalore. But they don't find exactly what they were expecting, because hanging from the ceiling like bats are a bunch of TIE fighters. This is some kind of base. And before they know where they get what's happening, pressure doors close, and from the roof, a bunch of people in what looks suspiciously like a cross between Stormtrooper and Mandalorian armour jetpack their way into the cavern, followed by a dude dressed in black armour that looks suspiciously like a cross between Mandalorian and Dark Trooper armour. For it is Moff Gideon, who has found a whole bunch of Beskar and equipped his crack troops with what is effectively Mandalorian armour. A battle ensues. 
in the battle, a couple of things happen. Slightly before the battle, some people are wounded and the armourer volunteers to take them back to the fleet. Because if you're on the surface of Mandalore, you can't call for help. There's too much atmospheric interference, apparently. And so she loads the, the casualties up onto, onto a ship and is gone. As the battle starts, the Mandalorians dispatched Axe Wolves to go get help. And we see him essentially climbing out the chimney and going away. So that's Axe Wolves and the Armourer, both Mandalorians, off the board. A battle ensues and the Mandalorians fight bravely, but they're outmanned and outgunned and are forced to retreat. With the somewhat predictable battle cry of this is the way, Paz Vizsla remains behind with his massive gun to cover their retreat and makes a noble sacrifice. He takes down many of Gideon's forces with him until his weapon completely overheats and he is overcome. Then he's captured. Grogu is off hiding somewhere. What is to become of the Mandalorians? Well, find out next week, but the episode does leave us with some questions. The episode is called The Spies, plural. We know who one of them is. Kane is one of them. Who's the other? Well, I put it to you that there are two key suspects. And this is obviously presuming that there are only two spies. Plural of spies could mean there are many, but I'm going to go with two. Either the other spy is the armourer, or the other spy is Axe Wolves. Now, if they're spies, who are they spies for? Well, presumably Moff Gideon. Somebody must have been feeding information to the Moff. But who? Axe Wolves doesn't make sense to me. He was in charge of his own little Mandalorian fleet until Bo-Katan came back. He's only just returned to the fold. If he's been spying for Moff Gideon for a while, why? What information was he giving them? If he's a recent recruit, I don't know, I'm not sure that hangs up for me. The armour I can make a case for. I mean, she is a religious zealot. She has gone on record to say that she does not recognise Bo-Katan's claim to the throne of Mandalore. And she does not regard Bo-Katan, or has not previously regarded Bo-Katan, as walking the way. And yet, she has caused Bo-Katan, who had purged herself by bathing in the living waters and was therefore fine with the Death Watch and the Armourer's cult, until the Armourer herself told her to take off her helmet. Here's the elaborate plan. Could the Armourer have been working with Moff Gideon to get rid of the other Mandalorian factions? And has the Armourer been promised that she and her Death Watch will be allowed to settle back on Mandalore if she betrays Bo-Katan and puts the Darksaber back into Gideon's clutches. I'm not going to rule it out. There's also the possibility that she's working with Darth Maul. There's an argument that by the Armourer's reckoning, he could be the last person to have the right to wield the Darksaber, and she may therefore give him some recognition for that. I do note the little horns on her helmet, that's all I'm saying. I don't know, this is all speculation at this point, but it's fun, isn't it? If you are listening to this, then episode 8 of Mandalorian Season 3 is available to watch. So if you have Disney+, Plus, you might want to do that. I'll be back 
next week with a review of that episode. So we shall see. Now we must be patient, for this is the way. And so, because I am really pacing myself and not getting in to the Star Trek reviews immediately, Doctor Who news! And we have finally seen an image of Jinx Monsoon in the costume that she will be wearing in the new season of Doctor Who. And she looks great! I mean, a bit manic, but I guess that's the point of the character. Um... Lots of black, big shoulder pads, piano keyboard lapels, and lots of speculation still as to who she's playing. Lots of people still going for the Rani on the grounds that the Rani is A, a woman, and B, quite camp. And I don't know. I mean, I'm always up for a bit of Rani myself, but what I hope is that Jinx Monsoon will actually be playing a completely new character. Because, well, for a start, it'll annoy all the people who want it to be the Rani, but also because I don't like that we keep going back to the same well with Doctor Who. I mean, we've got 60 years of history, and of course we're going to want to keep going back to some of the classics, but one of the things I think that what I'm still referring to as New Who, in spite of the fact it's been around for very nearly 20 years now, I know. Some of the best stuff has been the new stuff. Just because the show is 60 years old does not mean it has to be constantly delving into its history. There's a future out there too. And it's a show about time travel, so come on. Anyway, for a given value of camp, I think Jinx Monsoon looks amazing. Am I going to like the character? I don't know. I... I do find myself, and it's probably because I'm getting old and grumpy, I do find myself not enjoying the arch campness all that much anymore. But we'll see. Jinx Monsoon is a fantastic performer, so we will take it under advisement and we will find out in due course. And, oh, oh, go on. Look, I, look, I can't put it off any longer. It's time. It's time to talk about episode 9 of Picard, season 3. Okay, and look, I know I've sounded this already, but... Just so they were absolutely clear, if you haven't seen Picard episode 9, then I don't want to spoil it for you. So please be warned. Spoilers! Spoilers! Because seriously, I cannot bite my tongue any longer. I have just watched, well, I say I've just watched, I have watched this episode many times now. I think I've lost count. I'm into double figures. 
And every time I watch it, I enjoy it just that little bit more. Because it's it's as close to perfect an episode of Star Trek I've seen in a good long while. So, where were we? Well, we left our heroes having got themselves into a bit of a pickle. Yes, they had destroyed the Shrike and they had successfully got rid of Vadik and all of that was looking rosy, but they are still fugitives from Starfleet. They are still fugitives from the Federation. And that's a bit of an issue if you're all Starfleet officers. And they were all still certain that something, something was going to go off on Frontier Day. This weird procession that, that Starfleet was insisting on having, where it was going to get every ship in Starfleet to congregate around Earth at the same time. Now, I'm not a security specialist, but I'm fairly sure that if you've got a navy, and I know Starfleet isn't exactly a navy, but if you've got a military force, and I know Star Starfleet isn't technically supposed to be a military force, but it is, and one of its jobs is defending your alliance, because there's more to the Federation than Earth. I mean, it's called the United Federation of Planets, plural. So what you don't do, I'm pretty sure this is this is borne out by history, Pearl Harbor, anyone. What you don't do is you don't put your entire fleet in the same place. Because what you're doing, if you do that, is inviting an attack. Now, as I say, I'm no military strategist, but I think that line of thinking is pretty sound. So Starfleet are idiots, basically. Uh, I, mean, I have talked in previous discussions of the Mandalorian that the, the, the political class of the New Republic are dumb as rocks. Well, apparently, so is Starfleet. Because not only, not only has some bright spark thought it was a good idea to bring every ship they've got into the same location but they've also and this has been mentioned this is not a spoiler because it's been mentioned before they've also come up with a mechanism by which every ship can be slaved to every other ship so that they're all connected and capable of acting as one now hmm i don't know but again i'm not sure that's a good idea and do you know who else didn't think that's a good idea Geordie LaForge didn't think that was a good idea. He's already told us that. And um, Chekhov's gun and all of that. Something is clearly going to go wrong with this, this synchronisation because Geordie wouldn't have told us about it otherwise. So, where were we? Well, the other thing that was happening is that Donna Troy was going to find out about what was going on with Jack Crusher. He'd been visualising this red door in his head and behind this red door was something that he was deathly afraid of. Deanna Troy was going to walk him through the door. And so, at the very beginning of this episode, we see her approach the red door and open it. And then run away really quickly! Because it transpires that what 
she saw behind the red door was the Borg. And yes, called it. I told you. Didn't I tell you? I told you it was going to be the Borg. It's the Borg. But it's better than just the Borg because this is really clever. I'm genuinely, genuinely actually really, really impressed with the way they've done this. So what we've got is the Borg are inside Jack's head. How can this be possible? We can see how they might get inside Jean-Luc because he's been assimilated before. We can see how they might be able to hack into Seven because she was Borg. But but Jack Crusher, he's never been assimilated. What's going on? Well, you know that syndrome that Picard had? We've already established that he didn't have it. So what was causing those symptoms? Symptoms which Jack also has and which we had assumed had been passed on from father to son. Well, they had, but they're not a syndrome. They're Borg technology, biological Borg technology that was passed on from father to son. Jack Crusher is Borg. And because he's Borg, he can communicate with other Borg. And that explains how he was able to enter the mines and take control of other members of the Titans crew. He could do that because he's part of a collective. And then we pause and we say, hang on a minute, what, wait? Because he can do that because... Although he's never been assimilated, he's inherited that DNA, those biological components from his father. That makes sense. I can, Well, it makes sense for a given value of Star Trek, at least. I can see how that works. How has he been getting into the heads of the rest of the Titans crew? Because they have never been assimilated and they are not the children of Jean-Luc Picard, unless Picard has something he wants to tell all of their parents. So what's going on? We're not sure. What we are sure about is something is going to happen at Frontier Day. The changelings have done something. And although they haven't quite figured out what, they've got to do something. But first, they have to deal with Jack. And I rather liked this scene. They figure this out between them. There's Jean-Luc and Beverly and Deanna. And they figure out what's wrong with Jack. And Picard is like, oh, right, well, I, I must go and tell him it's my responsibility. And Deanna is like, just just, just hold on there a second, Jean-Luc, because there are protocols. Your son is Borg. He's a threat. We have to contain him. And so Jean-Luc goes to speak with his son, Jack, and explains the situation. And Jack is... Well, understandably, not particularly down with the programme. The suggestion that Jean-Luc has is that there is an, in heavy air quote, academy on Vulcan where he would be safe. And Jack says, yeah, I've heard of this place. It's not an academy. It's an institution where they're going to mind meld and mind wipe me until the Borg is gone. Well, nah, thanks for that. So he goes to storm out and is met by two burly security guards who aren't going to let him go anywhere. Except, of course, 
he has this thing where he can control people, so he does, and suddenly there aren't two big burly security guards stopping him going anywhere. There are two big burly security guards escorting him wherever he wants to go, which is the shuttle bay, where he steals a shuttle, turns off its transponder, concentrates really hard, and follows the signal that the Borg collective is sending to him. And off he pops. And so now there's not much else to do. Uh, a rather touching bit where Beverly Crusher observes that she gave Wesley space and lost him to it, and she paid so much attention to Jack that she couldn't see what was right in front of her. Which is, you know, I, I get it. But there's still stuff to do. So they plot a course for Earth and go and try and warn them about Frontier Day. Meanwhile, Geordie is doing his thing and trying to figure out, well, how is this working? What's going on? And they discover what the changelings have been doing. The reason they stole Picard's remains from Daystrom Station was to get his DNA so that they could program it into the transporter systems of as many ships in Starfleet as they could. When they'd done that, every time somebody went through the transporter system, that DNA was inserted into them. Now, it didn't change the brains of the old folk, but anyone who was young enough for their frontal lobes to not be fully formed, which they handily point out in humans is anyone under 25, well, effectively, they've been assimilated. And this is proved when the Titan arrives at Earth. To witness the, the Frontier Day parade thingy. Because just as all of the ships are locked and synchronised together, the Titan included, because it's part of this network, the Borg strike. And all of the people who have this Borg DNA in their brains are activated. And suddenly, every ship in the fleet is effectively full of Borg. Our plucky bridge crew realise what's going on, and the old folk are able to escape the bridge of the Titan. They figure out that they can get to a place with a shuttle in it and escape. So they all head there, and suddenly, the crew of the Starship Enterprise is back together, along with Raffi and Seven of Nine and Captain Shaw. A firefight ensues, and here our heroes are a bit, bit of a disadvantage, because they don't want to kill anybody. So they're shooting to stun. But the assimilated crew who've become Borg have no such compunctions. And as one by one, everybody breaks for the, the shuttle bay and, and end up with Raffi, Seven and Shaw laying down suppressing fire. And then suddenly Shaw is hit. Seven and Raffi insist that Jean-Luc follows everybody else into the shuttle. They stay behind. And... If I was a cynical man, I would say that what we've actually just done is remove everybody that wasn't in Star Trek The Next Generation from the group of people that are going to fix this. So Raffi and Seven go to help Shaw. Shaw passes the command of the Titan, for whatever that's worth, given it's in the hands of the Borg right now, over to Seven. And actually, for the first time, calls her by her actual name. He calls her. Seven of nine, showing that he's come full circle and learned to respect Seven and therefore to forgive her Borg heritage and perhaps therefore to forgive himself 
for surviving the Battle of Wolf 359. And then he dies. And you could hear the howls of Star Trek fans from across the internet. Because, for goodness sake, he's the first really, really excellent character to have been introduced since the end of Voyager. Really. So, grr, I was really hoping for a show that had Shaw in it. Who knows? It's retconnable still. We don't know quite what is going to happen to Raffi and Seven, or the Titan, or Starfleet. But we do know that our heroes have a plan, or at least Geordie does, because Geordie says, I know where we need to go. And he plots in a course, and off they go. And so you've got Jean-Luc Picard, Worf, Riker, Deanna Troy, Geordie LaForge, Data, and Beverly Crusher. And they all arrive at the Starfleet Museum? And do you know what? Uh, Up until this point, I was not surprised. This was going where I thought it was going to go. I had assumed they were going to commandeer Voyager. Because Voyager was, after all, as I said last week, designed to fight the Borg. But no, Geordie has a surprise, not just for his crewmates, but for us too. He makes a comment that, well, I was going to save this for a surprise, but I guess now's as good a time as any. And the, the sort of space dock doors of the Starfleet Museum open. The shuttle flies in and we are met by the USS Enterprise D, the ship that started it all. And there is some consternation. And Picard, well, how? And Geordie says, well, I've been thinking on this for about 20 years. You know, you can thank the Prime Directive. The saucer section was removed from the planet it crashed on because it might have interfered with stuff. And, you know, I got the engine nacelles from a different different ship, different galaxy-class ship. And I've been putting it together, and she's, she's not quite there yet, but she's ready. I'm getting torpedoes and stuff loaded by drones as we speak. And so they enter the bridge. And do you know what? It was so nice to see that bridge again. And it was particularly nice how dated it looked. Because you could really believe that, in spite of the fact that it's all futuristic, you could believe that this is, yeah, this is an old ship. And... To see those characters back on that bridge was, I can't tell you how happy it makes an old geezer like me. And there was just some really touching things. Data approaches his old station where he sat for seven seasons. And he just puts his hand on the back of the chair and just says, hello, chair. And that was so incredibly touching because it it shows the development of data too. Gene Roddenberry's original concept for data would that he would be almost human, but just not quite. And he would continue to get more human, but never actually get there. This is the most human we've ever seen data be. He's still not quite there, but he's almost there. And if this is going to be the end of his story, and it looks as though you know, this is where the next generation kind of ends, perhaps. How beautiful to do that. And then we get Picard, who 
says, you know, he, he looks at the dedication plaque on the bridge and says, you know, it's only seeing all of you here that I finally realise what I've missed the most. It's this carpet. And yes, just a nice nod of the hat to the absurdity of having a carpet on a spaceship. It was just all so, so fabulous. And when Picard sits in that chair and the voice of Magel Roddenberry acknowledges him as captain. And he says, oh, I accept the field demotion. It, just perfect. Just perfect. And of course, Wolf is Wolf. There was a lovely joke as the shuttle approached the Enterprise D where somebody says, well, of course, we can't use the Enterprise E. And everybody looks at Wolf and Wolf says, that was not my fault. And I thought that was a bit of Star Trek lore that I'd missed, but apparently it's not. I, I, who knows what Worf did to the Enterprise E? I'd quite like to find out. I think that's very funny. And then when they got back onto the Enterprise D, one of the first things Worf says, because he's a Klingon, was, I preferred the tactical systems on the E. And Deanna's just like, Worf! And he looks at he looks at Geordie and she's, she's perfect, Geordie. And th that was very funny. I really enjoyed that. And then we get we get Picard saying, "Lay in a course, make it so. Engage. It's perfect. It's just, it's just perfect." And then we see the Enterprise D leave space dock, blast into warp speed, and our heroes are off to save the day. What happens? Well, we'll find out next week. If you're listening to this on the day that it drops, Thursday the twentieth of April. If you are a Paramount Plus subscriber, you can watch episode 10 right now. If, like me, you refuse to pay any more money for streaming services, for goodness sake, well then, it'll be available tomorrow on Amazon Prime. And I am at peak nostalgia. As I say, I don't know how younger people are relating to this show, and frankly, I don't care. They appear to have made this show just for me, and I'm very happy with it. And I will be honest, I almost don't mind what happens in episode 10. Whatever happens in episode 10, it will be my old friends from the Enterprise D saving the day yet again. Perhaps just one last time. And honestly, genuinely, and I know this is soft of me, but what can I tell you? I'm kind of tearing up just at the thought of it. And I hadn't realised that Star Trek mattered to me quite that much. But apparently it does, so there you go. So next week, we boldly go one last time. Join me. Join me then, because I can't think of people I'd rather go there with. Honestly, I think I was quite restrained there. But we will move on, because it's time to consider another wonderful woman of science. So, I would like you to cast your mind back to August the 16th, 1933. Because that was the day, somewhere in Brooklyn, Sarah and Maurice Cohen had 
a little girl. They called her Judith, and she turned out to be a pretty bright kid. By the time she was in fifth grade, the other kids in her class were paying her to do their math homework. She was often the only girl in her maths classes because early 1940s, and she decided that what she really wanted to do was be a maths teacher. And by the age of 19, she was in college studying engineering and dancing the ballet at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. She was actually with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company. She got a scholarship to Brooklyn College uh, to study maths, but she realised that actually engineering was much more her thing. And so after two years at Brooklyn College, Cohen got married and moved to California, where she worked as a junior engineer for North American Aviation, whilst attending the University of Southern California at night. And she said later in life that she went through both her Bachelor of Science and Master of Science programmes at USC without ever meeting another female engineering student. She received both her bachelor's and master's degrees from the USC Viterbi School of Engineering in 1957 for the bachelor's and 1962 for the master's. And she continued to be associated with that university, eventually serving as an astronautical engineering advisory board member. And in 1982, she became a graduate of the UCLA Engineering Executive Programme which was, you know, even in 1982, kind of groundbreaking for a woman to be doing. Her actual career, though, began in 1952, when she began work as a junior engineer, as I said, at North American Aviation. When she graduated from USC in 1957, she went on to work at the Space Technology Laboratories. Uh, now, they eventually became TRW, which were acquired by Northrop Grumman in 2002. She stayed with that company until her retirement, in 1990. Now, her engineering work included all kinds of aeronautical and avionics tasks, including working on the guidance computer for the Minuteman missile, which was the um, early 1960s uh, ballistic nuclear weapon that the Americans had. She also worked on the abort guidance system in the Apollo lunar module. Now, the abort guidance system, or it's NASA, so it's initials, AGS, was absolutely vital in the safe return of Apollo 13. A story I don't want to get into here because you'll know about it. But there were issues with, if you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the film, they had to use the lunar module as a kind of lifeboat to get them home because the service module was, was, was kind of disabled. Uh, and there were limited supplies of electrical power and water in the lunar module and the primary guidance and navigation system used too much water for cooling. As a result, um, after the lunar module descent engine was burned two hours past its closest approach to the moon to shorten the trip home, the abort guidance system was used for most of the return, including two mid-course corrections. Now that's a huge extra load of work for a computer that was not designed to do that. So the fact that it could is a real testament to all of the people that worked on it, uh, but particularly for uh, Judith Cohen. Now, according to her son, Neil, and I'm quoting Neil, uh, this quote is taken from Wikipedia, my mother usually considered her work on the Apollo program to be the highlight of her career. When disaster struck the Apollo 13 mission, it was the abort guidance system that brought the astronauts home safely. 
Judy was there when the Apollo 13 astronauts paid a thank you to the TRW facility in Redondo Beach. So there's quite a lot of stuff going on there. Um, she was married at this point. Um, she married fellow engineer Bernard Siegel, uh, who she'd met while she was a freshman in engineering school at Brooklyn College. Uh, they had three children. Um, the aforementioned Neil, who I just quoted, who is an engineer and scientist, uh, and then Howard and Rachel. Now, Bernard and Judy broke up and divorced in the mid-1960s when she married Thomas Black, uh, a guy who clearly was besotted with her because he converted to Judaism um, so that they could marry. Um, they had a son who rather disappointingly didn't become a scientist. He did, however, become the actor, Jack Black. And there is a story that is told and which is confirmed by uh, Jack Black's half-brother, Nigel, that she went into labour with Jack Black while the Apollo 13 disaster was unfolding. And she was actually working out equations to help with the abort guidance system getting the astronauts home whilst in labour. Obviously, I have never been in labour myself, but I'm imagining it's quite distracting. The fact that she could produce equations to that level of accuracy to achieve what she achieved with those equations whilst going through something like that is a real testament to her skill, her dedication, but also her natural talent. So she retired in 1990 and she began, she began a, publicing, a, a, publicing, a publishing company called Cascade Press uh, with her third husband, David Katz. Uh, they published two series of books. There's a series called You Can Be a Woman... Dot, 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 uh, which was created to encourage very young girls to pursue careers in science and engineering. And the Green series, which focused on promoting positive environmental practices, also aimed at young children. Uh, thus far, Cascade Press has sold in excess of 100,000 books from those two series. Uh, Cascade Press has also published uh, a book called Women of Apollo, written by Robin Friend, who is Cohen's daughter-in-law, which features short biographies of four women who helped put the first man on the moon. Cohen is unsurprisingly featured there. Um, in the May of uh, 2014, uh, she was awarded the IEEE USA Distinguished Literary Contributions Award for her work with STEM for children. That was a remarkable career. Uh, she finally left us in 2016 after a short encounter with cancer. My word, does she leave a legacy? So talk about Judith Love Cohen, perhaps when discussing um, space guidance systems, or perhaps when discussing the parents of Hollywood superstars. But talk about Judith Love Cohen, because her name deserves to be remembered. And so, time's winged chariot draws ever near. We don't have time this week to go over any comics recommendations. I do have a comics-related recommendation for you, however. Geeking is a fairly broad geek-related podcast, but I don't make any secret of the fact that I own a comic shop in Harrogate, and you'll be unsurprised, therefore, 
to discover that the main focus of my geeky obsession is comics. And I often regret, indeed I believe I said it out loud on the show, I often regret that I don't do enough on comics specifically. And if you feel the same, well, I'm going to point you at one of the reasons why. I couldn't possibly do the kind of podcast that John Suntress does with his Word Balloon podcast. If you have any interest in comics at all, you really should check it out. John interviews all of the rock stars of comics, all of the big names, all of the up-and-comers. Everybody wants to be on John's show. He is a really incisive but not confrontational interviewer, and his show is always, always both entertaining and informative, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So whilst I still do not have time to go and do show notes, so there isn't a link in the show notes to John's site, just Google John Suntry's Word Balloon or just Word Balloon Podcast and check it out. As I say, if you've got any interesting comics at all, you want to be listening to that. And with that, we will just glance briefly in the direction of the Geek Community Notice Board. got a couple of things to highlight from our friends at Geek Retreat on Oxford Street. Uh, the Home Education Social takes place between 10am and 12pm tomorrow. That's Friday the 21st of April, if you are listening on the day this drops. Uh, also tomorrow, if you're listening on the day this drops, uh, between 6 and 7 in the evening, there are the Yarn Geeks getting busy. And of course, tomorrow is Friday, so it's Friday Night Magic between 6.30 and 9.30pm. Uh, also this weekend, on Saturday morning between 10 and 12, it's the Morning Pokemon Club. And between 3 and 6, it's Mini Painting Mindfulness. And on Sunday, uh, St George's Day, for those that celebrate, um, family board games between 10am and 12pm, and Warhammer kicking off at 1pm, running until 5pm. More going on early next week, but I don't have the information for that. Just go to Geek Richard Harrogate's social medias, uh, mostly on Facebook, I think is where you'll find all the stuff. And although I can't properly mention this yet, Whilst pointing you at the Secret Lair social media so you can find out what's going on over there at Hornbeam Park, I also just want to just tease a little bit. We will be working with the Secret Lair and others to create something pretty special that will be happening in Harrogate um, for Geeks in November. It's not Thought Bubble. It's not Thought Bubble related. I suppose it might be Thought Bubble adjacent. Things finalised, so I can't say anything, but it might be a great show. Keep checking back for more information. So, all that remains for me to do is remind you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production happily made here in Harrogate. We'll be back next week with more science, more space, more geeky stuff. Hope to see you then, same time, same listening device. Until we do, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. And above all else, remember that Star Trek Picard is copyright Paramount Global and used here purely for review purposes and for the purposes of celebration. We'll see you next week. You take care. Make it so. I sir. Mr. Data, set a direct course for Earth. Maximum warp. Aye, Captain. Course laid in, sir. She's ready. Engage.